Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us. A busy day, and it is going to continue as we are expecting to hear from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in about 20 minutes, 1230 hour time. He is expected to hold a news conference. We will bring that to you as it happens. And lots of reaction and discussion happening over the changes that we've seen today. Christian Freeland officially sworn in as our country's now finance minister. What does this mean as far as what's happening with the federal government and what we can expect in in the coming hours, days, and weeks. So let's bring in Bill Curry. He is the Ottawa Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. Bill joins me on the line now. Bill, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so we saw the, the swearing in of Christian Freeland. Not a huge surprise there, uh, that happening today, but I, I guess still people a bit surprised that we saw Bill Morneau step down in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a, a surprise. I mean, um, I think if... If somebody wants to say that it was going to happen a month ago, that would be even more surprising. But uh, there were certainly signs of the last few, uh, more just the last week, I guess, uh, some stories about some uh, some issues or disagreements between Mr. Trudeau and, and his finance minister, Bill Morneau. So in, in that sense, it did seem like something like this was at least a possibility. But um, like the opposition said today, it's, it's, it's very unusual when you are in the in the midst of, uh, which is not just a health crisis, but an economic crisis, that you're the country's chief economic manager, the finance minister, uh, would decide to leave. So uh, it's very strange, and that's certainly something that uh, Mr. Trudeau is going to be asked about today when he meets reporters. Yeah, and they certainly did kind of set the groundwork. Like you said, nobody would have expected this a month ago. Then these bits and pieces of perhaps a disagreement on the type of spending, how much we should be spending as a country started to leak. So kind of setting the ground, setting the stage for Bill Morneau to exit. But do you think anybody is buying that he decided of his own free will that this would be the best time for him to step aside and pursue other opportunities? Well, yeah, people have to uh, make up their own minds on that. Uh, that's certainly the, the opposition's argument is this, this whole uh, claim that this is based on policy differences is, is a kind of a political fabrication. Their argument is that uh, Trudeau couldn't uh, fire Morneau for ethics issues, particularly around the We Charity issue, given that he also is implicated in that and uh, also had uh, decisions around that in which he was uh, in at least a perceived conflict of interest. So um, it looks to some from the outside as this is kind of a a justification created to uh, make the case for this uh, change for reasons that might, uh, you know, be about we, but they don't actually want to say that it's about we. So uh, it will be certainly interesting to watch for the next while. And then we've got talk... Two, we'll want to ask Trudeau about this, but there's some talk that uh, he might prorogue Parliament. And depending on how that is done, that could have implications for the ongoing committee studies of uh, the WE issue, which um, at the moment there's uh, outstanding requests for government documents that could be released. Those could produce a a wave of more stories. So um, if the prorogation is immediate, that would end those committee hearings. But if it's delayed until later in the fall, that that should give time for that those committees to wrap up. So the details of what exactly is going on about prorogation is very important, and that's something that I'm sure reporters will be pushing Mr. Trudeau on in a few minutes when he appears at the news conference. And he's got to know he's going to be questioned on that because, as you've written in the Globe and Mail as well, there are all these reports and speculations that he is going to prorogue government, but we haven't actually heard him say that, have we? 
No, exactly. There's been no formal confirmation of that. And, and uh, from our sources, we're kind of getting mixed signals as to what exactly is going on. So um, we're just going to have to wait and see what uh, what he has to say on that. Um, because in prorogation, as you know, when, when Stephen Harper did it, when he was in a minority parliament, uh, it created uh, a massive controversy because it can, especially in a minority parliament, it, uh, it kills all the bills and committee work and kind of gets the government out of some trouble that they might be having in Parliament. And, and here we've got a similar situation. It's a minority government in trouble with some committees causing problems. Um, but it's not necessarily that big a deal. It kind of depends on the terms because there are procedural measures where after prorogation you could just uh, reinstate everything back to where it was and it's pretty much all it is is just an excuse to have a throne speech. So I think that's why these details are going to be very important in terms of uh, how worked up everybody should get about this or not. Right, and you make a good point about the timing. Is it going to be for a few days? Is it going to be for a few weeks? But I think one of the questions, and hopefully the Prime Minister answers this today, is if he does prorogue, what is the benefit? If the benefit is seen as getting rid of the We Charity Committee probes, then people are not going to like that. People are going to see right through that. But what is the benefit of proroguing rather than simply uh, doing your cabinet shuffle and moving forward. Right. Now, we saw the Green uh, Party uh, parliamentary leader, Elizabeth Mays, making that point that really, like, they haven't even acted on their own uh, recent throne speech. I mean, we just had an election in 2019. Um, they started to act on that, but then their original agenda was all uh, derailed from uh, COVID. So they put all this stuff in their platform and initial throne speech that they haven't even really started with. So it seems somewhat odd that you would uh, need an excuse to, to reset or refresh the agenda. That's usually usually what happens with a prorogation is once you a government has already implemented all their stuff in their platform and then they want to announce some new ideas, uh, bring them to the tail end of their mandate. That's normally when you have a prorogation. And the previous Trudeau government didn't even do prorogation at all because they got elected in 2015 on a platform that criticized the Conservatives and Stephen Harper for the way they used prorogation. So you don't even there's no real reason to have prorogation other than to have a, a throne speech, and it's it's largely um, ceremonial and fanatic. There's not a lot of practical reasons for it. All right. Well, we are going to be waiting uh, to see and listening in uh, when the Prime Minister speaks in about 15 minutes. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us and for your time today. Appreciate it. All the best. Thanks. Thanks for being with us. We are expecting to hear from Justin Trudeau this half hour, and we will bring that to you when the Prime Minister starts speaking. Right now, though, we want to check in with Stuart Prest, a lecturer in the political science department at SFU. Stuart joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, So much to look at and break down, and we're still waiting for the Prime Minister to answer questions today. But to start off with, uh, I'm getting a lot of email from people saying, what exactly does it mean to prorogue Parliament? What is involved in this? Well, the easiest way to think about it is it's it's a bit of a pause and a reset for Parliament. So um, effectively, the... uh, the Prime Minister asks uh, the request prorogation uh, of the Governor-General. The Governor-General generally will say yes, unless there's uh, uh, some controversy around the request. And uh, and then it uh, uh, Parliament doesn't meet during the period that it is prorogued. And then when it comes back, the uh, the government introduces a new speech from the throne and usually a new economic statement of, of some kind that communicates a new direction for the government. So it's a way to, for a government almost to gather its thoughts and to, to move ahead in a new direction. And, uh, 
it is actually a, a common thing. It generally happens once or twice during the life of a parliament. Um, the last uh, parliament uh, from 2015 to 2019, we didn't see one, but that's the, that's the exception, not the rule. Is it strange, though, to be doing this in the midst of a global pandemic, an economic crisis, and with the finance minister just resigning? Well, yes and no. So there's... Uh, the government has had to deal with uh, a huge number of changes from the time since it brought in its, its last speech from the throne, laying out its, its agenda after the, uh, the, the last election. So there's a, a good argument that the government may need to take stock and to uh, chart out a different direction to respond to these changing circumstances. But all those other issues uh, matter. So the, the, the manner in which this prorogation happens uh, is going to count for a lot. So if the government were to say, uh, prorogue for a period of uh, of multiple weeks or even more than a month, then that would be um, that would uh, be a little controversial because we have these uh, uh, parliamentary committees doing uh, ongoing investigations and and uh, uh, hearing testimony regarding the uh, the controversy surrounding the We Charity. So the, the fact that those are ongoing, that work would pause as well. And uh, and so it may seem like the government is is uh, skirting the. Um, uh, the scrutiny of, of the House of Commons. So that's one issue. And then the other is, if circumstances change yet again and Parliament isn't meeting, then uh, what happens if we need new emergency legislation to to release new funds or to, to bring online a new program to respond to some changing circumstances in these unpredictable times? And in which case, there would have to be some sort of emergency recall, and it would be quite a bit more complicated. And you, you touched on that, which I think a lot of people are looking at, that if this is a way to stop the committees that are looking into the We Charity scandal, then that doesn't look good. No, and it's I, it, your your mileage will probably vary. So uh, people have uh, many have made up their minds on on where that that controversy is, and uh, the, the committees have heard a variety of testimony at this point from from ministers and and from senior civil servants. So um, so those who are inclined to to sort of give the liberals a pass may say the committees have more or less done their work. But for those who feel like there's still more to be heard on those stories, then they may object to a, a lengthy pause of, of the committee work. It, it can resume with the, the resumption of Parliament, but if it is for an extended period of time, then, then yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily look great. And like you said, too, it, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and if things change, do we not need our government to actually be in government or at least sitting and ready to react to that should they need to? Yeah, very much so. And I think um, the reason why we're seeing this happen the way uh, it is, where there's a, an announcement that, uh, or there's at least a reporting that prorogation is coming, but it's not going to happen until sometime in September, is perhaps signaling uh, an awareness of that fact that uh, Parliament needs to be to ready to, to resume at a moment's notice if there is some new emergency situation cropping up or new new funding is necessary. And uh, and so I would be surprised if this prorogation, when it happens, lasts for more than a, a couple of weeks, uh, because because then it would be a, a, a more lengthy process to, to recall Parliament if, if that became necessary. Does it seem, though, as well, I mean, we don't have to go back that far to find quotes from Justin Trudeau calling out Stephen Harper, saying that he was avoiding a, a tough situation. He was using the proroguing of, of Parliament to get out of a tough situation and that it was a spineless way of doing things. I mean, he said that of Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper, I think, was was taken, was questioned much more than Justin Trudeau over, over proroguing. Uh, is it not a bit hypocritical to now see the prime minister doing almost exactly the same thing? Uh, possibly. And again, I think it's a lot is going to hang on the details of how this prorogation happens. So 
there are there are certainly parallels where that was a, a minority government facing uh, a House of Commons that was uh, was involved in, in, in criticizing and investigating. And in some ways, uh, there are differences as well, though, because at that moment, the uh, the opposition parties had united in a, a kind of agreement to, to bring around a, a motion of non-confidence, that is to express that they no longer supported the government and would like to see a new government form, possibly a new minority government with the Liberals at the head, or could have been a coalition. We'll never know exactly what it would have looked like, but there was a, a much more concrete challenge to to the confidence of, of the House. And uh, so we're not at that point now, but the the, this, the principle is similar. If, if there was a, a lengthy prorogation to try to avoid ongoing questions from Parliament, then it would be sort of a, a minor key version of the same sort of issue. And will this government then, do you think, if it does go that route and is granted uh, proroguing of Parliament, would they not face the confidence vote again then with the throne speech? Uh, yeah, they would. So they would have to demonstrate uh, confidence once again. So they, there, there wouldn't be a... a uh, a prolonged avoidance of, of uh, Parliament, and that's, of course, it's just one of these long prorogations, but I, I suspect that's not going to be the case. So so it, it would be um, account, uh, they, would, they would still be held accountable by Parliament at uh, a date to come, and they would have to demonstrate that they still have the support of at least one of the opposition parties. So given the, the arrangement of the seats in the House right now, all uh, opposition parties would have to work together to, to bring down the government, and so far we haven't heard um, that kind of unanimity from from the opposition parties. It's possible the NDP would continue to support the Liberals no matter what. I don't think they're they have an appetite for an election, but the the government will have to prove that it still has that confidence. All right, Stuart, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this rather busy Tuesday afternoon. In case you're just tuning in, we now know that Parliament will be prorogued until September 23rd. That is when we will hear the new throne speech. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying the new throne speech is needed because the current throne speech makes no mention of COVID-19, of all of the things that have changed in this country since March, even before that, I suppose, since the pandemic started. He's also talking about the fact it will lead to a confidence vote. And uh, a lot of people, I think, are surprised that the proroguing will start immediately. That is going to be that long of a session because, as we know, that means any orders, any bills that were in the system that were at any stage in the system, those now fall. And as do the committee investigations looking into the We Charity scandal. The Prime Minister was asked about that. Uh, He said the document have all been handed over to those who have asked for them. They are free to continue going over those, uh, I believe he called them mountains of documents. But there is still a fair amount of criticism that this stops the work of the committee. And there is no real reason, there is no justification for why the committee would have to stop working now and why this couldn't, they couldn't have been allowed to keep going and doing that work and still at the same time working on while there is work being done on the throne speech that was being delivered on September 23rd. Uh, Getting a lot of email on this topic. Betty writes, Hey Jill, I will not be ooing and aahing about Ms. Freeland appointed to finance minister. She is not an economist nor an accountant. If she is a wizard at everything, then we should have a smaller government. Have you ever heard of the phrase, jack of all trades, master of none? All I am hearing from the PM today is more spending 
and without accountability and a move towards socialism. Socialism only works until your money and mine runs out. Uh, my thanks to Betty for sending in that email. Uh, we'll share some more of your email and your calls to the buzz line coming up a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, we are joined by Pierre Polyev, a Conservative MP and the finance critic. Uh, Pierre Polyev, thank you so much for being with us today. Great to be with you. Uh, well, there's a lot to go over. I'm sure you were listening in or are up to date on the fact that we are seeing this proroguing of Parliament until September 23rd, a lot longer, I think, than people were anticipating. What's your response to that? Trudeau shutting down the parliamentary investigations into the Wee scandal that saw him grant a half a billion tax dollars to a group that had paid his family a half million dollars. He was saying, so he was asked about that in the briefing. He said the mountains, I think the word he used was mountains, of documents that were asked for have been delivered and that they can be, they will still be looked at, obviously, and they can be scrutinized. Do you think, though, the work of the committee, so does this effectively stop any work that those committees are doing? Yes. Um, he probably haven't seen these documents he claims have been released. I suspect they'll be heavily redacted and that they will have been very selective in choosing the documents that he's uh, releasing. It's, it's all well and good for the government to release thousands of irrelevant and unrelated documents. As you know, the, gov- the government departments are full of useless paper. Um, for him to dump a bunch of it out the door and claim that, he's, that the scandal is behind him is crazy. He's under investigation by three parliamentary committees that were set to hear sworn testimony from numerous witnesses uh, into how uh, it is is that he Trudeau personally uh, granted a bill, half billion dollars to this group that had paid his family a half million, but now those hearings can't uh, go ahead because he shut down the entire parliamentary system, and who in, including the committees. What is your response as well to the resignation of Bill Morneau? The Prime Minister was asked about it today. He again, as he tweeted out yesterday, talked about he thanked the the former, now former finance minister, wished him well in the future. What is your take on how that has unfolded? Well, Morneau resigned for breaking the Ethics Act twice. Um, and uh, Trudeau uh, has broken it three times. So why hasn't he resigned? Uh, you know, Morneau is resigning for taking a, an illegal forty-one thousand uh, dollar vacation from a group that he was funding. Um, Trudeau's family took over a half million dollars from the same group, and he personally was involved in giving that group uh, our money. So if Morneau has to resign for taking an illegal forty-one thousand dollar gift, why? isn't Trudeau resigning when his family took more than 10 times that amount? I, I suppose if you were if you were playing devil's advocate, you would say that because Morneau said his in his reason for resigning, that's not his reason for resigning. It was the right time to do so. Less than a year after he was elected. Yeah, and I think and I think that, that that's why so many Canadians have so many questions about this. I mean, what does it say uh, to have a finance minister who, I mean, there's two things that stick out to me. One, like you said, it's the timing of it, the fact that we're in a global pandemic and an economic crisis. Uh, we have a finance minister as well that uh, these leaks started coming out in the days leading to his resignation that he and uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who have always come across as best of friends, actually disagreed and perhaps 
perhaps he was being thrown under that bus because he wanted to be more fiscally responsible. I don't buy it. I think, uh, you know, these two have been uh, very tight. They've been known as the trust fund twins because they both, of course, inherited these massive family fortunes and kept them into in tax dodging trust funds. And so they share a lot in common, uh, very privileged, uh, wealthy families that gave them a lot of money. And and they took that uh, that uh, extravagance to the way they managed public finances and just shoveling billions of dollars out the door in all directions and bringing us massive deficits. So they both agree on the deficits that we're running right now. Uh, what I think happened was that Trudeau uh, wanted to have a scapegoat for the we scandal, but he couldn't very well fire a finance minister for breaking the Ethics Act twice when when Trudeau himself broke it three times. So they broke. They made this made up this crazy excuse about having suddenly uh, never before mentioned disagreements on policy. Um, but you know, you touch on another interesting point. Our economy is collapsing. Our public health is at risk, and the man who's supposed to be running the nation's finances quits in the middle of that. This is a government that has gone from corruption to cover-up to chaos, and that's where we are today. Uh, the, pr- the Prime Minister also, uh, you don't have to look back too far to find his comments about uh, Stephen Harper and his use of proroguing Parliament. Uh, he talked about it at the, fi- at the time in the platform in 2015, saying that, that uh, as a government, he would not prorogue Parliament for any political reasons. Uh, he defended that today, saying that it's very different from what Stephen Harper did and that they are bringing the House back at the same time it was scheduled and they are looking forward to a confidence vote. What do you say to that? But the difference is they shut down the investigations that happened in between now and then. There are three parliamentary investigations that were looking into how Trudeau funneled half billion dollars to a group that had paid his family a half million dollars, a million bucks. Uh, you know, and Trudeau has now shut those investigations down. There's nothing wrong with proroguing. He could have prorogued on September 22nd. That would have allowed him to bring a speech from the throne, from the governor general to the floor of the Senate, uh, and introduce a brand new revitalized agenda. But instead, he shut down Parliament and those investigations today to cover up his own corruption. When the investigations can resume then after September 23rd, do you have any confidence that they will? Or are they going to be then all caught up? I mean, are we going to be caught up in a throne speech and a confidence vote and and with whatever comes our way uh, come September 23rd? Well, I think they're hoping to drown drown the scandal under hundreds of billions of dollars of borrowed money. They'll show up, uh, you know, and they'll just spray cash in all directions uh, um, under the pretext of um, supporting X, Y, Z programs. But really, it will be designed to distract people from their corruption, from liberal corruption, with uh, taxpayers' money. Uh, so that, that's the strategy. They're clearly making the setting the stage for this monstrous uh, debt spending orgy. Uh, and uh, it will be designed to make Canadians forget that the Prime Minister tried to give a half-billion-dollar grant to a group that had paid a half-million to his family.
Uh, I'm not sure Canadians are ready to forget and are willing to forget that one, perhaps as as quickly as we have pushed aside previous scandals. Uh, There will be a confidence vote. So what does that mean for you as a Conservative MP, talking to uh, other party members uh, uh, leading leading up to and to that confidence vote? Well, we have to see what the vote is on. Um, But what we want is to use our parliamentary muscle through the increased seat count and vote totals that Conservatives mustered in the recent election to uh, hold Trudeau accountable and make sure we we expose the corruption uh, of the Wee scandal so all Canadians can judge for themselves before they vote. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Pierre Polyev, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Taking a bit of a break from talking about federal politics, although we will revisit that at the end of the show. And my guess is there will be more discussions throughout the rest of the week, at least. But some numbers when it comes to Canadian real estate caught our attention. Canadian home sales surging to a record in July as people started coming out from lockdown. Thankfully, some people started getting back to work or adjusting their work schedules, trying to figure out that new normal with working from home. Joining me to talk a little bit more about the numbers and what we've been seeing here in BC is Brendan Ogmanson, Chief Economist at the BC Real Estate Association. Brendan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good to be here. What did the numbers look like in July for BC? Uh, strongly up. We weren't setting records uh, like for the, the all, all of Canada, but uh, sales across BC have more than regained their pre-COVID-19 levels. And and we're sitting a little bit above kind of 10-year average levels uh, in July. And when you say above average, are we talking about the number of sales or the prices or both? Uh, the number of sales. The number of sales uh, has, has recovered really strong and yeah, is now sitting kind of around 2017 levels, more or less. Um, prices in a lot of markets are also up, uh, both in when we look at average prices and some uh, other measures that don't uh, 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 kind of adjust for some skewness. Uh, we're, we're really seeing uh, a real um, shift in preferences of buyers towards single detached homes. That's skewing the average price a little higher. Uh, I think makes sense, though, when, when you're in a pandemic and you're kind of looking around and expecting to be uh, in this kind of state for a, for a, a while longer. Uh, people are, are, I think, wanting a little extra space. And are you noticing a difference or is it is it too early or can we even look at the fact that so many people are adjusting to this idea of working from home and not going back to work five days a week? So if you're somebody that had maybe a long commute, are you now looking at buying maybe more out or away from your work out of the downtown, the busier areas, because you know you can work at home more? Uh, yeah, it could be. I think it's probably a bit early to tell if that's, if that's really a trend, uh, though we are definitely seeing uh, the single detached market uh, in, in Greater Vancouver, uh, in Fraser Valley, really across BC, um, uh, showing a lot more strength than, uh, than other parts of the market. And is that, do you think it's because of prices are still a bit less the further you get out? Uh, like you said, if it's too early to tell if it's, if it's directly related to someone's work and work at home environment, do we know what's driving that? I think it's really um, related to the pandemic. I think if if, uh, if you are expecting that you're going to be having to work from home or you're going to be shifting to working from home um, over over a longer period or you're just going to be in kind of a hybrid situation, maybe you want a home office, maybe you just want more space 
Uh, maybe you want to get out of the city. So uh, I think that there's there's some of that going on for sure. It, it, it's hard to say if it's a uh, you know how long that trend will last, but I think it's definitely uh, true that the pandemic is starting to kind of change uh, change some preferences. Right. So if you're if you're in the four walls or you're living in 500 square feet and you have the option of moving out to somewhere bigger, it probably looks a little more appealing after you've been staring at those four walls for months. It, Exactly. Um, what about low interest rates? How is that playing into this, do you think? Uh, it's, a, it's a big part of the equation. So I think there's a lot of really unusual things about uh, this pandemic-induced recession that we don't normally see. So in a usual typical recession, we're, we would see demand falling, sales falling, and listings rising. Uh, in this case, because, we, you know, because interest rates hit record lows uh, pretty quickly, uh, and because governments and central banks, you know, the Department of Finance have, have really learned lessons from the financial crisis 10 years ago, uh, they really went, uh, went after credit markets with sort of overwhelming force to make sure that borrowing costs didn't spike the way they did in the financial crisis. And that means that mortgage rates uh, have hit uh, record lows. So you can essentially borrow for a five-year term at 0% after we, you know, adjust for 2% inflation over that period. So that always has a real impact on, on, on both uh, home sales and prices. Uh, no surprises having that impact now. It's just that at the same time, we're also seeing listings decline uh, from the start of the pandemic. That's really unusual in a recession. Usually when you get double-digit unemployment, listings start to really accumulate. We have the opposite happen this time around, which, again, makes sense because of social distancing. People weren't necessarily comfortable with people coming into their homes and touching their things. And they maybe did also didn't want to move during a pandemic. So we've actually seen most markets be somewhat undersupplied while demand is returned you know, back to normal and then some driven by pent-up demand and those low interest rates. And when you look at that as well, do you get a sense or are we able to look at the numbers and know when we're talking about people that are moving to get more space or, or maybe shifting and working from home? Are we talking, are we talking about people that are listing and, and purchasing again, like the second time or the third time buyers and not so much the first time buyers? Or do we know how that breaks down? Yeah, no, we don't have that that kind of granular detail. But, you know, it's one of the things that we're really seeing, I think, is also a really unusual part of the market uh, is uh, or an unusual part of this recession uh, is that when you look at employment by wage type, uh, it, it kind of starts to the, become clear why we haven't seen as much of a drop in, in demand. Uh, if we look at high wage sectors, they've actually seen employment fully recover back to pre-COVID levels, whereas lower wage lower wage uh, sectors uh, are still uh, uh, well well below uh, pre-COVID levels. So most of the brunt of the of this recession has really fallen on young workers and lower wage workers, especially sort of frontline service sector workers, they don't usually support the the ownership market. So what we're seeing is people who are going to be kind of in the housing market anyway, especially in more expensive cities, haven't really felt this recession as as much as others. Uh, And now they can borrow at essentially 0% for five years. So we're seeing the type of of shift and increase in demand that we're seeing now because of all those dynamics. Right. So it's not necessarily people getting into the market for the first time or people seeing that opportunity with the low rates. It's people that are already in it to seeing those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. I think what we're, we're probably much more likely seeing is, is people who are already um, in sort of their prime earning years a little bit further along in their careers 
uh, have probably owned uh, previously. I think that's where maybe, and then maybe you know, looking around and deciding that they want more space so they can they can move out of the city and and, and work from from home uh, in the future. I think younger workers, uh, as as it has been the, over the past ten years, are, are really bearing the brunt of a lot of these, the uh, the the in this case the the weakness in the economy and some of the changes in policy. It just makes it harder for them to get into the market. And uh, I know we can't make predictions or it's difficult to do so, but with these kind of numbers in July, are you expecting that when we look at August, when we've been able to compile the numbers in August or even going into the fall, that we're going to see this trend continuing? Oh, yeah, I fully expect August to be uh, maybe not as strong as July, but but certainly uh, is going to be a very strong month. We already kind of can tell from some of the daily numbers that August is going to be a strong month, at least in Metro Vancouver. Uh, you know, we're kind of at a, an inflection point in a lot of markets where you're either going to start setting new records in terms of, of monthly home sales or things are going to kind of retrace a little bit. And I would expect that we're going to see a lot of markets retrace a little bit back towards more normal levels. Uh, there's some more kind of uncertainty in the fall and, and just general seasonal patterns. But uh, I think we're going to see strong sales, maybe not continuing to set records month after month. But I, we do expect that uh, this recovery is going to sustain through the end of the year. All right, Brendan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.